Hi, this is Zach Glazer from Frog God Games. Grab your D20 and get ready for save for half. School games and the modern games inspired by them. Welcome, one and all, to the Safer Half Podcast, a podcast about old school games and the modern games inspired by them. Now, this episode, we are talking about Gamma World 4th Edition. Not the one based on 4E D&D. This is the one from 1992. And I am one of your hosts, Dia Mike, who suffers from attraction odor. It's bacon! (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) Pretty much. Predators show up in my mutation. They think I'm delicious. There's a reason I had the nickname Zombie Chow on Homepage of the Dead, because, you know, I'm there to be delicious. (laughs) Joining me with with, uh, periodic amnesia is DM Liz. But what what am I doing here again? Stuff. Oh, uh, okay. And DM Corbett with poor dual brain. No, that's not me. Wait, yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, yes, no. <laughs> and finally, last but not least, DM Jim with his hostility field. Hey. <laughs> I'm not hostile, but if you don't make your save, you must hate me. I don't know what, so. Yep. I may not have made my save, but if I didn't, I forgot all about it. That's okay. You forgot to be hostile. You already (laughs) forgot about his hostility field. All right. We are talking about Gamma World. Yes, this is Jim's choice, so you need to know who to blame. (laughs) Naturally. Naturally. (laughs) But before we get into the nitty gritty. I read all the emails on the face of the were harmed in the making of this podcast. Normally we cover emails in our half shows, but this one was so appropriate that we figured why not cover it on this one? Not to mention we kind of owe Coho for the eternal Facebook f- or, or the website form issues. <laughs> that only he experiences it. Should yeah. Be well, if it was anyone else, they didn't bother to say. So yeah, that's all we know. See, he cared enough to tell us about it. Other people might have tried, and it's like, eh. <laughs> eh who cares? <laughs> All right. Well, Liz, do you want to read it? All righty. Kojo says, greetings, friends. I recently listened to an episode of another podcast where the host <gasps> outlined many things that he considered to be cheating by Game Masters. 
specifically things such as fudging dice rolls and modifying encounters on the fly. On rare occasions in my younger days, I would fudge a dice roll in the player's favor, never for my own as GM. But this practice ended when I started playing Dungeon Crawl Classics and stopped using a GM screen. Now I always let the dice fall as they may. However, I do still modify the encounters on the fly when I feel it is important for enhancing the story. If an encounter is going too easily for the PCs, I will add reinforcements to the encounter or increase the hit points of a monster on the fly. If the PCs are badly losing an encounter and refusing to flee, I have been known to find some other reason why their opponents would disengage, such as a lucky blow by a PC, or even just a roar in the distance that happens to frighten them off. Either way, I never do this to the point that it sways the encounter too far in the other direction. I adopted this stance based on a rereading of Gary Gygax's book, Role-Playing Mastery. To quote the reference in question, There are times when the GM will bend or break the rules of the game system in order to allow his players to maintain their characters. Just as he sometimes meets out punishment for infractions, the GM at other times intervenes benevolently spreading his aegis over the PCs to save them from probabilities gone awry. To put it bluntly, when play is at a low ebb, or it is quite likely that the player characters are about to suffer undue loss or extinction, the GM cheats and decrees otherwise. Opponents miss their blows, PCs manage to strike their foes, and various sorts of miracles occur. This is wrong only when it is done too liberally or when it is unwarranted. Page 49. So, I'm curious where you all fall on this issue. When I interceded behind the scenes to make the encounters more interesting and engaging, am I cheating? Am I doing the players a disservice? I look forward to your thoughts on the matter. DM Kojo. Thanks, Kojo. And we'll start with Jim. I freaking love this uh, email, Kojo, so thanks for sending it in. I just have two things to say about this. A, any uh, game master that says they never fudge the dice rolls is a dirty liar. We've all done it. <laughs> Every single person has done it at some point or another. And B, I think Gary Gygax's quote that he put in the email answers the question very, very well, because it's all your job as a GM is to deliver fun. Well, how do you do that? You do that with a story. Well, how do you do that in a story? You do it with a story arc, conflict, and drama. I love letting the dice tell the story. But once in a while, you know, if you're three hours into a session and suddenly the dice start betraying everybody, I will very carefully fudge dice rolls or as needed. And I learned the same trick uh, Corey learned. I roll my dice out in front of a screen. I picked that up from Adam Miskevich because that increases the drama because it gives the, this is deep magic. Players tune, tune this out. Rolling out in front of the screen adds to the drama of the combats, but I can still carry modifiers in my head that they don't know anything about, right? A skilled GM can come up with a context for something to go. So yeah, yeah, it's it's all just about delivering a great game and lots of fun for everybody, including yourself. And uh, no, you, it should be used extremely rarely. Yeah. Corbett. I agree with Jim. The, the um, <laughs> ditto. Uh, yes. <laughs> there was a, there was a diceless game I picked up a long, long time ago called theatrix. And it's basically based around the idea of if you 
if it will affect the story in a poor way, then they don't succeed. And if it, if it helps the story, then they succeed. It's basically all storytelling. But it kind of made me realize the point of the dice is to give, like like Jim was saying, it gives the drama at the moment for these, these high-end events. But you don't want to go, okay, and now we have to jump on this ship because the ship takes us to point B that we have to be at. So everybody jump off the dock and roll for it. Everybody falls straight into the, the sewer or whatever, <laughs> and they're stuck. And like your entire story dead ends. That's not practical, so why make them roll at all? Just have them jump to the ship, drama, and everybody escapes the way it's supposed to be. A fight typically is pretty random, and you may have a bad guy die, you may have a good guy die, and that could add to drama in a lot of different ways. They can definitely say I've fudged the dice from time to time whenever like a, a, a important bad guy, uh, like a big big bad, is, is going to die too soon because he needs to die later. Mm. <laughs> And, you know, I'll have somebody else step in and he runs away or something like that. Okay. Anyway. All right, Liz? I gotta say, I'm with both Jim and Corbett on this. I do believe that there are legitimate instances where you should basically perform DM fiat and say something. Again, it all falls down to, are you being heavy-handed with it? You don't want to be heavy-handed with it. And you don't want to do it in such a manner where it seems unfair to someone. It's a balancing act, but I do think that there is a legitimate time and place to fudge a die roll. Okay. Bah! (laughs) (laughs) I agree. There are times. You got me ready for the full Tim Cask there for a second. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, the important thing is for your players not to notice. Because the moment your players figure out you're fudging the dice a little, it takes away a lot of the tension. It takes Mm -hmm. away a lot of the excitement. I played under a DM at one time who we actually started doing really stupid crap with our characters just to see if we would die. Because he kept letting us live so that we could go to the next scene so we could just... And that's, no, you you don't want that. People lose interest, really. On the other hand, people always have spates of bad luck as far as dice rolling, like you said. My, My personal philosophy is, unless there's something, like taking Corbett's example, unless there's a major significant chance of failure, just, they don't roll it. They just do it. They jump on the boat. And you don't want to have a die roll on a scene or an action where the continuation of the game hinges on somebody succeeding. Yeah. Never do that. Yeah. Because that is going to be the time when everybody flubs their role. No one is going to succeed. And your story has ground to a halt at that point. You are so right. You need to make sure. Yeah. You need to make sure if you are going to have die rolls for important events, make sure it is not an important event where failure stops the story altogether. You've got to have some alternate way for them to go forward if that happens. That's an adventure writing rookie mistake, too, that they even used to do in old computer games where, you know, the red card, you need to get through the red door is hidden someplace on the level that you cannot find. That's no fun. Yeah, exactly. So I think we agree with Gary for the most part. It's like, have that ability to do it, but don't do it too much. Yeah. And if if people are deliberately doing stupid... They should die. die. 
let them yeah, die. <laughs> let their characters die. Because obviously that's what they want. So Liz should write a book and that should be the title. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, no, I mean, if you can make a TPK entertaining, then TPK them. They're being stupid. I'll totally Ooh. do that. Oh, I've got the title. Monday Liz Mastery. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on I'm it. already on the Kickstarter for that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Rock, Co. Otherwise known as Rocks Fall, Everybody Dies. Everybody. <laughs> or to quote Chase, our old DM, <laughs> a crate of eggs falls on you. You're dead. <laughs> no matter where you are. All right. Well, hope that answer sings, Coho. And with that, we'll go to a pod break. Broadcasting from the back of a van. What have we gotten into? It's Radio Free Muncie. Three dudes talking about gaming and comics. We're going to have some old school versus new school discussion. All through the lens of the Knights of the Dinner Table comic strips. Layer of the gazebo, classic strip. So join us at anchor.fm slash Radio Free Muncie. a world without nearly enough quality gamer podcasts they came. The Grognard Files, a podcast about role-playing games from back in the day. You know they're experts because they speak with British accents. Find them at armchairadventureblog.com, iTunes, or wherever fine podcasts are served. Frogs lay hundreds of millions of eggs every year. What would happen if they all hatched? American International Pictures presents Frogs, the story of the day nature strikes back. What strange sequence of events unleashed such a slithering, slimy tidal wave of fear? Why did these particular people on that particular island face this particular kind of terror? See Frogs, starring Ray Milland, Sam Elliott, Joan Van Ark, Adam Rourke, and Judy Bass. Frogs, an American international picture, in color, rated PG. Frogs, today the pond, tomorrow the world. It's time for Mike and the Mechanics. Sorry, sorry. That's Mike and the Mechanics of the game. My bad. Mike and the Mechanics. Well, this one's going to be kind of easy. The fourth edition of Gamble World in 1992, they decided to make it, I'd say, 90% compatible with second edition AD&D. Mm-hmm. All the stats are 3 to 18. The stats are physical strength, intelligence, dexterity, charisma, constitution, senses, and mental strength. 
So you make mental strength wisdom, and you've pretty much got all the D&D stuff there. Plus senses. It has classes. The classes are Enforcer, Esper, Examiner, and Scout. Which, Enforcer is a fighter. Esper is kind of a magic user. Scout is kind of a thief ranger type. Examiner is different, but we'll get into that. We'll examine that. Exactly. (laughs) If I was going to compare it, it wouldn't be to a PC class, but I'd say it's kind of like the sage that you would be able to hire in town for stuff. The researcher. Only he's discovering things that kick butt. (laughs) Like older versions of Gamma World, hit points are basically determined by your constitution score being a D6. You roll... Yeah, you got a 10 con, you roll 10d6 for your hit points. You do improve by leveling. Yeah, they do also add by leveling. Health is a stat that is basically your saving throw. And combat is d20 with armor class affecting, etc., etc. So it it should not come as a big surprise to anyone who's played D&D. Can I do a public service announcement about the various editions? Sure. Just as an addendum so everybody knows what we're talking about, because people get very confused with which edition of Game World is which. First is the original box set. Second edition is just a cleanup and republish of first edition. Third edition Gamma World is a combat system very influenced by Phaser Rip from Marvel Superhero Game. With the universal table, yeah. Fourth edition is the one we're talking about. Not like the box set that came out just 15 years ago, 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, that was based on fourth edition, wasn't it? Yes, Yeah. but, but that's not fifth edition. <laughs> fifth edition was published under license by White Wolf. And that was the D20 version, right? Yes. Okay. And wait a minute, now I got myself confused. I had them all lined up in my head, I swear to God. Because 7th edition is the one that you, that was based on 4th edition D&D. Wasn't there one Omega World? That, was- that doesn't count as an edition, but yes. Uh, Dungeon uh, Magazine 94 had Omega World, which was a nice, tight little rule system, too. Okay. Hmm. All right. God, in the effort to clarify things, I confused myself. <laughs> There's always Wikipedia. 4th edition is 2nd edition AD&D. You said it. Right. Cool. All right. Well, let's talk about first impressions. Just a first impression. I could be totally wrong. It's only a first impression. And only impression is strong. It never can hurt a question. This time, we'll start with Liz. Like you said, very compatible with second edition AD&D. As I started reading it, it kind of felt like coming home. It's like you're sinking into a well-worn, comfy chair you've had for so long. It just sort of automatically conforms to the shape of your body as soon as you get in it. (laughs) I mean, I'd never read the 4E Gamma World book until getting ready for this episode, but it just felt so familiar and cozy. So that, that was my first impression. It's like, ah, I, I kind of know this. I feel like I know this. Don't have to listen to our older Camel World podcast to remind us of the rules system. <laughs> All right, Corbett. Uh, I too was in a comfy chair, but it was a comfy chair of anger. <laughs> so, oh my. I really, 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 really hate second edition. As much as everybody else hates third, I really hate second because I was bitter about the, oh, we don't need this first edition because we're going to get a totally different version for second edition. And it turns lied. out they just wanted money. <laughs> I didn't realize that. You got the Jeff Easley art, but that was it. <laughs> 
And I was like a little, it was a little bitter. And as soon as I started reading, he's like, this is second edition. Damn you, Jim. Ah! <laughs> I worked through that. And it's, Liz is right. It's kind of fun to read. And it's, it's got some moments. There's some stuff I didn't like, some stuff I did. But it, I think it was that initial shock of second edition. <laughs> Damn your eyes. Sorry. Okay. Jim. <laughs> My goodness. The alternative version was 5th edition. There. Ah, I coughed it up. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about alternative. Just as TSR was dying and Wizards was coming in to snap it up. I I obviously picked this. I love it. I ran a Gamworld campaign off and on for 30 years for my crew. And when we got to this edition, it solved so many problems and made it so much closer to the D&D. AD&D, we were already playing. Everybody loved it. And we'll go into the details of what all that involves. You could go get this on DriveThruRPG and and run it today with very little effort. Okay. My first impression. Uh, Much like Liz, I felt like I was sliding into the comfy chair with the soft pillows. There were some changes that I liked, some I didn't. But yeah, like you say, we'll get into it. But yeah, if I were going to break out Gamma World and said, okay, everybody, let's play a quick game of Gamma World. If I wasn't doing a campaign, I might very well just use this rule system because it's a lower entry level. If you don't know the Gamma World rules, it's okay. You play D&D, okay, you're now 80% there. So there we go. Top five. Now we'll go back to Jim. Oh, okay. This, my number five, only came upon rereading it fresh for the podcast, even though I ran the system for years and years. What I adored about it is kind of what you're talking about, where it's a comfy chair. This, From a game designer standpoint, this is a very transitional system. It's just it, because it came out in 92, so it's chronologically parked in the middle of second edition AD&D, but internally TSR, they're already working on third edition it's when it's still TSR. Mm-hmm. And some of those changes they're looking at are creeping into this. So this doesn't have Thaco. It does have ascending armor class, but it's still called just THAC, THAC, together with MAC, M-H-A-C, for mental attacks. And as reading it as from as a game design document, it was very interesting to me picking up on all those little things because it, it's not it's not full core D and D third edition, but they were already thinking that way. It's credited to Bruce Nesmith and James M Ward, but I got a but there was additional design by Zeb Cook and Slade Han- Henson, and I got a feeling that that was those guys starting like a little skunkworks project. What do we want to do? So it's an interesting combination of older traditional game mechanics, but they're starting to think about newer ones they're going to put into Dungeons & Dragons 3rd Edition. Yeah, I was surprised that Ascending Armor class went that far back. But, okay, Corbett? You know, I should point out that the comfy chair was used as a torture device by the Spanish Inquisition, so... <laughs> I didn't expect you know. that. <laughs> no, no one does. <laughs> oh, wait, I see what you did, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> a little humor hand grenade there. Uh, something that uh, I actually was talking to Jim about before we started. There, there's two camps, I guess, that at the time that were kind of the way to go, which is the wild Wahoo style of gaming, or Gonzo, or... I think I like Jim's statement of the stop sign gaming <laughs> and serious in quotes. I was actually like, that sounds dumb. Why wouldn't you just play it as is and just 
have fun or be serious or whatever. And the more I talked to Jim, I realized there are people who would want to do the Mad Max and there are people who would want to do Boy and His Dog. And there are people who want to do Thunder the Barbarian. And it's they're very different. They could kind of meld together, but they, they are very separate in style. Mm-hmm. So I guess Jim gets a point. Aw, <laughs> oh, thanks, buddy. <laughs> I guess. You make a fair point, and they were just recognizing it in that paragraph. The system itself is rocked back and forth through the editions. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Okay. Liz? Well, to further expand on Corbett's, I also took note of the two different styles of gameplay that they talked about. It occurred to me, as we've done a Morrow Project campaign in the past, for a serious styled campaign, I think it could be very interesting to mash up Gamma World with Morrow Project and have a Gamma World type setting be the one that the Morrow characters wake up to. And I think you could do a very serious style campaign doing a mashup like that. So instead of 200 years after, it's 2,000 years after. Yeah, or however long, especially if you keep it vague as to when the cataclysm or apocalypse or whatever happened. Who knows? Yeah. Mm. I like in 1992, it's still nuclear war. Well, yeah. The Soviet Union's only collapsed a year earlier. But okay, my five. Hoops! (laughs) (laughs) It's got hoops and doesn't have death machines. Which mm. annoys me. So this is well... a plus and negative. Because in the intro, they mention death machines. But then you go further back, and I could not find a death machine in the robots section. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> okay. I did find it funny, though, that under the hoops, they were trying really hard to describe them as, they are not cute. They are not cuddly. They are snarling, evil things with nasty, pointy, vicky teeth. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, it's a it's a bipedal rabbit. <laughs> Come on. I told you. <laughs> <laughs> I told you, but no, it's a happy little bunny rabbit. Every monster had a nickname. It was like floopies or what was the it? Floppies or yeah. <laughs> for the floppy ears, I guess. Like they don't like being called that. And like every monster had a had a secondary name, which I thought was weird. <sighs> Those are there so you can taunt them a second time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So you can really irritate them. It's a very Monty Python-based Gamma World thing going on today. Yeah. <laughs> okay, four, Jim. I like the hybrid hit point system, and when I was running these rules, my players took full advantage of it, especially since I was a little more liberal than about not having to roll your stats in order. So as you said, it starts out exactly like the old rules, where it's just your con score times D6, which is one of the standout features of the original game world, because those that makes some pretty beefy beginning characters. Mm-hmm. If you've got a high con, you could be walking around with 60, 75 hit points at the start. That's great, because there's a class and experience point level system in the game. You get another D6 every level, so now you're beefing up even more, and then Depending on your class, there are a single point you get every other level that you could choose to also put in your hit points. So you want to play some hard-to-kill characters. Play 4th edition Gamma World. Yeah, I didn't have a problem with the Gamma World original system because it didn't have levels and that sort of thing. In a way, you know, you're getting front-loaded and that's more or less... That's all you're getting. Yeah, unless you get more radiation with more mutations... That's, you're it. That's, that's all you go. So I don't know. I'm ambivalent. (laughs) So would you say (laughs) that if you were playing first edition Gamma World and the only way you're going to get more abilities and stuff is if you manage to get a cool mutation, 
Is it kind of like when you're making a character in Traveler and you keep rolling the dice to see if you can get skills without dying? It's like, I'm going to throw myself into this irradiated area and hope that I don't die. (laughs) Hope I don't die or get periodic amnesia. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So, all right, Corbett. Uh, Robot recognition is sort of a stat. Oh, yeah, I forgot robot... that one, yeah. Well, it's not exactly a stat. It's how robots recognize humans. And robots are generally the bad guys. I get the impression from all the art, for at least, that everything in there is like designed to kill humans, and specifically humans. And if you're like a hybrid human or a, a, a mutant animal or something, you have less recognition skills. Or, and this is what I got in my head, and just to role play this with Liz, I'm a robot here to kill you, Liz. Here's some pictures of sidewalks. Which one is a crosswalk? <laughs> if you get them right, I will kill you. If you don't, I'll let you go. Um, <laughs> that one. Oh, dog it. <laughs> I'll show you some pictures of buses later. Okay. What about ladders? <laughs> <laughs> pictures of ladders from a Sears catalog. <laughs> so robot recognition that's a funny thing that was on the side i just thought it was okay. weird and the way it was said was hilarious to me all right liz <laughs> okay i'm gonna talk about their very limited skills list which mm. mike should like <laughs> i was thinking the same thing <laughs> you'd think oh it's great though i think they were deliberately making a dig at the non-weapon proficiencies in second edition ad and d Because they say, in general, the Gamma World game rules do not concern themselves with a wealth of everyday skills, such as herbalism, (laughs) musical (laughs) instruments, stonemasonry, etc. Cheese making! (laughs) It is assumed that the characters have any reasonable skills of this nature. The game should not get bogged down with determining who can sew together the clothing. <laughs> oh, and Mike, as the AI god in the sky is my witness, sextants are in this version. <laughs> yes. Sextant in there. And yes. you don't need a skill to use it. DM Chase. Take that. <laughs> Take that, Chase. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like I read that. It's like, they must not have cared for non-weapon proficiencies either. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't catch that as a dig. That's a good catch. <laughs> okay. My four, they still have cryptic alliances and most especially Knights of Genetic Purity. Mm. The closest thing you're going to get in Gamma World to Undead. Something with no redeeming features, you just kill them. Or the clan, if you want the clan in your yeah, RPG. Yeah, the KKK or, or Nazis. <laughs> Feed a fever, starve a cold, punch a Nazi. You gotta have a hobby. Yeah, well... I- <laughs> If it's good enough for Captain America, come on. All right, number three, Jim. Safer half goes unexpectedly political. Uh, my number three. Here's the deal. When sitting down to design Mutant Crawl Classics, my sole intention, my prime line was write the best love letter to Gamma World and Dungeon Crawl Classics combined that I could. But even I have forgotten some of the things I imprinted on. And one of them is the way all mutations in this version of Gamma World are... Uh, divided in the main categories like physical, mental, and in this case, plants. But there's a subcategory of each mutation in the little write-ups are noted as either being activated or automatic, which I lifted shamelessly for MCC because the mutations in MCC can be active, which are the at-will powers, or passive, which is you've got rock skin, you've got giant wings, bat wings. When I was writing MCC, I didn't go back to this. I just imprinted on it somewhere along the line and 
like I said, stole it. <laughs> but you stole, stole it. Stole it real well. good. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, Corbett, three. Just a real quick one. Page 48. The metric system still lives in the future. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I noticed that like when I saw the, like, the movement, the base movement was 12. That made me think of AD&D, 12 inches, which, of course, is supposed to be a 10-foot square. In Camel World, it's in, what is it, like five meters or something? It's, it's in meters. It's not in feet. Mm-hmm. Everything's in the metric system. They have a, That's why page 48, that's where they have the breakdown. In case you didn't know the metric system, here's your reference. Oh, right, right. They gave you a little <laughs> table of it because we we're Americans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're going to keep the imperial system, even when England doesn't. We're still keeping it. Okay. Liz? Okie dokie. Um, my next one is the standard tech level in this edition is somewhat higher than in first edition Gamma World. Tech level three, or what is considered Renaissance level tech, is considered the baseline in this edition. If I am remembering correctly, or maybe it's just the impression I got, I don't recall, but I always felt like first edition Gamma World, you were barely in early middle ages, if you were lucky. I always kind of got a Neolithic feel to it. It's like maybe something that was super, super cool. Someone had a bow and arrow or a crossbow, <laughs> maybe. It's like, ooh. Is it? Fancy. Yeah, so the, the overall tech level has jumped up a bit for this edition. While a GM can have their PCs be from a lower level tech area, the standard of the world that you're in is meant to be Renaissance level. So you may come from a pretty backwards area, but you're eventually going to run into some towns and stuff where they've got cool stuff. <laughs> we played this edition that way, too. Like with castles and siege engines and the whole deal. And roughs. <laughs> roughs and lace. But they're mutant roughs, so it's okay. Okay, my three. I love how it says in there, it, it recommends variable entropy. To a degree, that's how I think we all played Gamma World early back in the day. But in this, the rules basically say, yeah, okay, it doesn't make sense that it's X hundreds or thousands of years after the cataclysm and there's still a vending machine or a King Kong animatronic. An M1 tank with gasoline still in the tank. Yeah. yeah. And the gasoline is still good, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and even though you go a mile down the road and the skyscraper is crumbled into dust, but that doesn't make sense. It doesn't matter. Entropy is variable. Just go with it. I'm glad they literally spelled it out now, because that's how we always played it. Mm -hmm. Of course, we watched Thundar the Barbarian, so that was our big influence. It's an important point, and like one in Mutant Crawl Classics, I intentionally ran the slider down. You are a Neolithic culture. You don't have farming. <laughs> and it's a 30th century fancy and super science society that fell, so everything's made of Doraloy and imperishable materials. That's why it still works after you dig it up 10,000 years later. Or styrofoam. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the Seventh edition of Gamma World went the other direction completely, where the verisimilitude was not there at all. Everything crazy could happen. Yeah, I read a novel Polly Kidd wrote that was based in seventh edition Gamma World. And mm -hmm. while I really enjoyed the novel as a story, the idea of waking up and every day to see what new mutation you have or don't have just strikes me as kind of i mean i like gonzo but that's gonzo on a whole different level especially when it came from you because you bought a booster pack with the right card in it yeah that too 
Okay, two, Jim. Number two for me is the reconceived and simplified uh, use artifacts diagram as compared to Game World First Edition. Oh my gosh, yes. We mm-hmm. all imprinted on that original thing, and it was always the most fun until it took somebody 30 minutes to <laughs> you kept going around the circle and mm-hmm. gameplay is ground to a halt. Yeah. They did a really good job of codifying it and simplifying it. It's one chart, not three. Your starting place in the chart is entirely determined by the complexity modifier of the artifact. And that means, I mean, everybody can pick something up and try and figure it out. So what's special about the examiner class? Well, they start off on a better place on the chart, presumably, because they chose to be an examiner by having a high prime requisite stat. And it says in the rules, they get more detailed descriptions of the artifact and the results. So this chart we used the thought of, and it wasn't the game stopper the one E chart was. Oh, I remember the chart in one E for the really complicated artifacts. The first time I saw that, it's like, what does this even mean? <laughs> How do you read this? <laughs> Oh, messy agrees. Actually, that wasn't messy. That was Boomer. Oh, she also does not like me to be loud. <laughs> None of the cats allow me to be loud. Yeah, I can be loud all I want, but that's yeah. right. Mike can do whatever he wants. They don't care. <laughs> okay, Corbett. I'm not one to talk about money, but let me talk about money for a minute. And ladders. <laughs> Especially not money and ladders. Yeah. The first few parts of the book, I was, it's very vague and kind of like, you know, you're going to go to like caveman areas and places with flying hover discs. It's all going to be trade and barter. There's no way anybody's going to have a standard money system to go across everybody because that would be dumb. And then toward the end of it, hey, you know, be great. A standard money system to go across all of this. <laughs> <laughs> so they have these plastic cards which are supposed to be roughly the same size as a credit card. And they're called Domars. And they hand them out to people. Somebody does. They stamp them in a way that makes them un... uh, What was it? Um, Counterfeitable. Uncounterfeitable. Thank you. Like, who? Who does it? (laughs) Who's who's handing out this universal money? (laughs) The deep state. I'm sure it's one of the cryptic alliances. I'm I'm sure the guys that are just discovering fire are really going to put these Domars to good use. I, I get the idea of having a universal system, and I was totally okay with it. Oh, it's all barter. I'm like, that's fine. That makes sense. We'll do like a- Aftermath did and just have barter points. Yeah. <sighs> anyway, that's it. So, money. Money, money, money. Money. Okay, Liz, two? I guess I will go with... Classes. Do classes. I don't want to do classes. You should do classes. No. <laughs> <laughs> Plants. Do plants. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to talk about the de-evolution mutation. (laughs) Fine, whatever. That's a good one. (laughs) It's one of the fun ones. You can actually make people devolve <laughs> into like if they're a human you could turn them into a cave a literal caveman a knuckle dragging neanderthal where's krog's list here have a shiny rock <laughs> but it's just such a fun mutation to have and i could see where if you're trying to have a serious campaign game 
and someone had the de-evolution mutation, it would go into wild and wahoo very quickly. <laughs> mm. Especially with mutated animals. Oh, well, kind of like, you know, that meme they have where they talk, you've got the, what the DM envisions the campaign to be like, and it's like a scene from Excalibur or whatever. And then the second panel is what the campaign turns into, and it's Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And <laughs> it's like, I could, that's what would happen if someone had the de-evolution mutation. <laughs> Hilarity ensues. Hilarity ensues. And turn everyone into chimpanzees. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That'd be like Planet of the Apes, though, wouldn't it? (laughs) If only. (laughs) Only we're all the apes. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Well, my number two involves... There was an issue of Dragon Magazine shortly after first slash second edition Gamma World came out. I do not remember the issue, but it basically tried to explain why pure strain humans had like super killer hit points. Even mentioning at one point there was a Gamma World adventure where you run into an eight-year-old girl who's a pure strain human, and it would take eight arrows to kill her. I didn't wonder how he knew that. <laughs> <laughs> But they, the article there tried to explain that pure strain human doesn't mean human like you and me, because I am a human man from Earth. <laughs> it basically tried to explain that there was genetic treatments and everything to make humans human maximums before the cataclysm. So it would explain why they're so capable. And in this edition of Gamma World, they said that they're not very susceptible to being mutated. They also don't have like crooked teeth or other problems. What I really liked was their description of how they viewed themselves as true man. They think of themselves as really the only humans in the world. The more they described what they thought of themselves and what the other mutant creatures thought of them, it occurred to me, my God, these are the elves of Gamma World. (laughs) They're taller, they're stronger, they think they're way better, but really they're the old race that is passing on, and mutants are are the race of the future. They just haven't realized or accepted it yet. Ooh, that's gold, Mike. I'm I'm, I'm stealing that. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I was like, huh. I hadn't thought of it that way. Well, I also read a book called Children of the Dust, which had that pretty much same mindset. So when I read through it, it stuck out to me. But anyway, okay, Jim, number one, take us home. My number one is that of the Gamma World editions to date, fourth edition was the one that had a full enough set of rules that you could actually run it as a campaign as opposed to just a one or two off as relief from your regular campaign. A lot of wargamey type combat rules. I mean, there's a grenade scatter chart in there for crying out loud. I like the fuller and more complete cryptic alliances. And I apologize for the link this is about to be, but I'm going on a rant. I have long believed that the original Gamma World would have been the second most popular RPG after Dungeons and Dragons if they had given it the same treatment. Rule books that were hardbound rule books, better module support, GM screen, things they kind of did. To some extent, in a way, but they would just get impatient and do another edition. If they treated it like they treated AD&D, I think Gamerworld would rank much higher in people's favorite RPG list. And this was the creative team trying to do that. 
they were not supported by Lorraine Williams and the regime at uh, TSR. But for 1992 to 1993, a whole bunch of adventures that, frankly, had better art direction than this rule book did. Great covers, great adventures written by Slade Henson and Bruce Nesmith and guys like that. And a couple, like one adventure was a little mini box set. And then the one thing missing from this game that I recognized instantly in 1992 is there are no rules for power armor. Just like there wasn't a death machine because they decided early on to save those for a proper box set game called Gamma Knights that Slade Henson and Steve Winter wrote. Ah. The problem with that was they decided that in front of the 1992 publication of this, by the time 93 rolled around and Gamma Knights came out, it's a good game, although the components in a box are very cheap. It's a good game, but it's a solo game and the rules don't retrofit back into Gamma World like I think they intended them to. We figured out a way to do it. For two years there, it looked like TSR was really giving Game World a go. Well, that sucks. But even in this core set, you've got enough stuff here to run a campaign. Now, do-it-yourselfers like us, it all started in the late 70s. We could have done that with 1E, and I did. But this was for everybody. You could run this with the classes and adventures and, and all the rules. You could run a campaign of this for as long as you wanted. Yeah. I complain about the death machine, but is it necessary to run Gamma World? Of course not. It's like a freaking ancient dragon. It's an automatic TPK unless they are really beefed up with some tech. Pretty much. But it makes players pay attention when you mention a death machine. Mm -hmm. Jim Ward loves them. (laughs) Yeah. Jim Ward's a liar. Remember that game of his we were in, the Gamma World, those? Oh. You, you weren't supposed to ask for a death machine. He said, I could have anything I want out of the book. I said, anything? <laughs> he said, anything. I said, I want a death machine. He said, anything but that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. I got robbed. Uh, you won. <laughs> you, you scored a point off James M. Ward. <laughs> and then he had to kill your character. Well, I died last, though. You did die last. I did die last with giant mutant feet. (laughs) Now, the question is, did Jim Ward fudge his dice rolls to kill your character? (laughs) Probably. (laughs) But hey, it's Gamma World. You kind of expect stuff. Anyway, Corbett, one. I cannot play a robot, cyborg, or an alien. Score against it. (laughs) You want to play Crichton? Uh, Something. I just like... (laughs) I don't need to be a death machine or anything like crazy. <laughs> well, see, you say that. And interestingly, I didn't finish, my Gamma World campaign didn't finish till around 2003. And it didn't finish with these rules. It finished with the Mutant Future rule system where you could do that as a player class. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. Liz? Okay. Uh, so this is number one now? Yep. Number one. <laughs> okay. To kind of tie this all back in to Kojo's letter to us, DM Fiat is strongly encouraged in this edition of Gamma World. In the section that deals with um, non-combat actions, the text literally tells the Game Master that this is a game that tells a story. If a character wants to break down a door, don't automatically reach for the dice. And basically directs the GM to decide what happens based on the context surrounding the action. Will immediate success heighten the drama of the moment? If the characters are being chased, maybe let them break through at the last moment, again, to heighten drama. They say if the story is best served by having a random decision, then roll the dice. So they're basically telling you, you should make choices. 
don't always roll dice. And in 1992, that was very cutting edge advice. Yeah. Okay. My number one. It struck me as kind of weird that they went to so much effort to retrofit Gamma World to second edition AD&D. And then the attribute tables are so wonky. I mean, it's not, it doesn't line up to AD&D. It's a little different. The ability modifiers? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they go up to 26 thanks to mutations. Yeah. I mean, I understand that. You know, obviously you got to go higher than 18.00, but at least up to 18 should be consistent, I would think. Again, if the whole point is to make people more comfortable. So that was an odd choice. It's minor, but it stood out to me. All right. Well, let's take another pod break. And when we come back, we'll talk about what makes the save and what gets horribly mutated. (laughs) Hey, everyone. This is Tim from Tomorrow Zen Podcast. If you're interested in post-apocalyptic Morrow Project, then Tomorrow Zen Podcast is for you. You can hear us at tomorrowzen.org, or you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Facebook, and more. Here at this old dungeon, we know times are tough. My wife was pregnant with our fifth alpha when they told me they didn't need no Cooper no more at the Shady Dragon Trading Post. I had the basic rule books and only a worn out copy of B2. I thought the adventures were over for me and my group. Then I discovered this old dungeon. Thanks to this old dungeon, my group and I are back at Gate And those caves are more chaotic than ever. With all the money I've spent on minis, I don't have the cash for those newfangled 200-page full-color adventures. But thanks to this old dungeon, I've been running my group through the same copy of Against the Giants since 2018. It was easy after listening to them. I just replaced the giants with ogres, then minotaurs, then werebores, then magically enlarged kobolds. This old dungeon is the program where old adventures are made new again. Come listen to hosts Bill, Edwin, and Lou as they reminisce about classic game publications and discuss how to renovate them for an all-new tabletop experience. Catch this old dungeon from your podcatcher of choice. This portion of the show is being brought to you by Ed's Almost Good Beer. Remember, Ed's Almost Good Beer was brewed in God's country when God wasn't looking. What makes the save and what is going to take? Free art! What makes the save and what gets poor dual brains? And this time we'll start with Liz. Woo! Okay, makes the save. I think these rules are overall more intuitive than the first edition Gamma World rules were. Whether that's because they're closer to AD&D than first edition Gamma World was, I, I can't say for sure, but I think that does play a part in how I feel. On the whole, I feel as though I could quickly jump into a 4E Gamma World game and feel very comfortable right out the gate. What doesn't make the save? This one was kind of tough for me. I eventually wound up deciding on this does have a higher starting tech level than first edition, and it can give the game a very different overall feel than that of 1E to me. I got a different feel for the world reading this set of rules than I did the first edition set. Your mileage may vary. It could be a deal breaker for many who cut their teeth on the first edition and loved it. I liked first edition, but it wasn't my favorite RPG, and I was never particularly married to the setting. So this change doesn't bother me that much, but I could see where it could bother other people, and they wouldn't much care for it. Okay. Corbett? You know, I normally start with what makes the save, but I think, I think I'm think i going to go with what 
kind of bugged me because it was a second edition take it felt really railroady in the sense that it was like it was trying to lock things down and i know what they were doing they were kind of laying into the rules to control people doing wild and crazy things and i think that was a limiter i felt like that was a limiter at least really you didn't like an inhibition against wild and crazy Well, the, I, I, there's a problem that Corbett's getting to. Like, how do you do that in a game with death field generation and life leech mutations yeah. and de-evolution? The thing is, that also is what makes a save for me. Because of that limitation, it makes me... I, I think Jim probably did the same thing, probably, where he's like, oh, I can't do that? Well, let me show you how it hurts. Because <laughs> my whole way through, is like, well, I think I could get around it by doing this. And I think I could just bypass this by doing like the robot thing. And like, I could just throw these rules out and put this in here and there. And I could have a robot guy really easy. And I could do this and I could do that. It wouldn't be hard. Hold my beer. Yeah, it, it's kind of like a construction set or uh, what do you call those? Uh, what what the, the erector sets. You, know, you can take a few pieces, put them over there. It'll work fine. <laughs> it's uh, It's because it's rigid. It allows you to break rules a little easier. Okay. <laughs> Sounds reasonable. Jim? I really like what Corbett just brought up because it's it's all part of the 50-year quest to write a rule system that fixes crappy DMs and terrible players. The eternal quest that no one's ever cracked yet, right? Well, not until AIs now are taking film. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you bet I wish I had written Mutant Club Classics with what I know about AIs now. <laughs> <laughs> what makes the save for 4th Edition Game World for me is easy. It's the single most playable edition of the game, in my opinion. The list of contributors on the credits page is lengthy. I'm going to heap it all on uh, Bruce Nesmith, Zeb Cook, and Slade Henson taking Jim Ward's premise and running hard with it. Because those guys' names play into a lot of the D&D innovation that is yet to come in 1992. What doesn't make the save for me particularly in this rule book is the uh, not especially great art and production values uh, it should have been a hardbound book it should have had more new art than just stuff recycled from prior editions I, I would have liked to have seen it bound up and treated like the D&D rule cyclopedia was mm-hmm. that, that's what doesn't make the save for me with this edition I have my original copy it's 31 years old in my hand and the back and front covers are hanging on by a thread and most of the spine is gone. It just says game rules on the side now. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like my copy of Holmes Basic, but if, if you've listened to this and you want to go give it a try, it's all of, all of the stuff on fourth edition is all over drive through RPG. You can go get it right now. Okay. And we'll have a link in the show notes. Okay. I'm going to do my thing. I usually do in that my save and no save are going to be the same thing. Bah. Right. <laughs> makes a save as stated in first impressions it's 90 percent a dnd so you can slide right into it if you know any dnd rules even if you're like coming from classic that's still 80 percent. you know it and obviously this sort of compatibility one could argue is what gary and them had in mind to begin with otherwise why have that stuff in the back of the dungeon master's guide first edition for converting to and from Gamma World to AD&D and Boot Hill. So I think that's good. It makes it easier to get a group together, to give it a shot. Doesn't make the save. This may just be a residual of the whole D20 movement on me, but I still maintain that a single rule system doesn't cover all genres well. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying this doesn't cover it well, but there are some parts of it that just seem to stick out weird when it comes to doing Gamma World in a D&D-ish setting. Can we make it work? Sure. As GMs, I think we're all experienced enough to do that. Even, you know, less experienced. 
But I just, eh, it's like if somebody came up with Traveler using a and d system, would it work? Maybe, but it just doesn't feel right. So it may just be my inner curmudgeon, bah, Grognard going off. So. Yeah, and that, I kind of got that impression when I was reading about the higher tech level, because now that it's Renaissance level tech, you could have a Gamma World person find themselves in an AD&D, Greyhawk, or whatever, and they'd feel very much at home, probably. Yeah. Much more so than they would if they were coming from a first edition Gamma World setting and finding themselves in a fantasy medieval type world. Yeah, Greyhawk, that sort of thing. I think you make an excellent point that a lot of people slide past. There are some genres that D20 is not especially suited to superhero games, for example don't work as well with the D20 engine as they would with something else. Everything can't be D&D. Right. Yeah. And I understand, you know, it's kind of that whole GURPS movement. The Well, if everything runs on the same engine, it's easier to go from point to point to point. But again, a perfect example, I don't think GURPS works well with Supers. I've tried playing their Supers game version of GURPS, and I just, no, I, I didn't like it. That's the second eternal 50-year Grail Quest, right? To write a universal role-playing game that adapts to every genre. Nobody's done it yet. Yeah. yeah. Or nobody's, well, GURPS did do it. But nobody's you know what done I mean? it no, successfully. Yeah. Nobody's really rung the bell yet. Yeah. yeah. I think GURPS gets close, but yeah, no. All right. Well, this has been Gamma World 4th Edition 1992 by Bruce Nesmith and Jim Ward. Hope you've all enjoyed it, and we will see you anon. Say goodnight, everybody. Good night, and hey, nani nani. <laughs> see ya. <laughs> Adios. Free arc. Then I'm afraid I shall have to call the police. <laughs> <laughs>